everybody, I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and this is The Sun Also Rises on KPCG-FM. Starting about 50 years ago, at the height of the Vietnam War, the U.S. Air Force began sending lots of F-4 fighter jets, flying hundreds of sorties, into those troubled skies over Vietnam. The F-4s were some of the most intrepid weapons the world had seen at that time, and they would just scream across the countryside to conduct bombing campaigns against the communist forces. One component of these very destructive F-4 war machines was an extra fuel tank. It was a huge center-line, 600-gallon metal tank. The tanks were made of aluminum and basically shaped like a missile because they were cylindrical in shape, but they had one end that came to a point to make them aerodynamic. Well, these extra tanks were extremely important to the F-4 because they allowed the jets to fly much further than they otherwise would have been able to. And once the tanks were empty, or even if they weren't yet empty and the pilot just suddenly needed more maneuverability to, to evade a missile or to maneuver against an enemy fighter plane the pilot would then jettison the huge tanks. He would drop it onto the ground below, and the jet would fly on. Well, by the time the war ended, there were thousands of these metal F-4 fuel tanks throughout many parts of Vietnam, just lying around in the fields or jungles or wherever they'd been dropped. And that might have been the end of it, were it not for the ingenuity of some Vietnamese farmers and fishermen. After the war ended, local farmers and fishermen in Vietnam there saw an opportunity in these fuel tanks. A lot of the tanks were too damaged from the drop to be of any use, but the ones that were still in good shape, these fishermen and farmers would drag out of the jungles or fields or wherever they'd fallen, and then with some outside-of-the-box thinking and some hard work, they would convert them into fully functional canoes. These F-4 canoes are pretty impressive. Each one of the fuel tanks is basically sliced in half along the long end, vertically, so they can make two canoes from one tank. And a lot of the completed canoes have outriggers attached to the sides of them and rudders built onto the back for steering. They have sun canopies added onto the top to provide shade from the sun for the fishermen. Many of them have small engines attached, and they maneuver through those rivers really adroitly. They're impressive little boats. And if you look at certain Vietnamese river systems today, you'll see hundreds and hundreds of these canoes. And the fishermen load up in them in the morning, in these things that used to be part of weapons used to annihilate people. And then they come back in the afternoon loaded up with fish to feed their families and to sell in local markets. The canoes have become a vital part of the fishing industry for many of the communities there. And I think this is a fascinating development because it's basically an example of turning a sword into a plowshare. That's what today's episode's about. Welcome back, by the way. Welcome to Season 2. Thanks for tuning in again after such a long hiatus there since the last episode. Today's show is about turning swords into plowshares. 
If you look outside the United Nations headquarters building there in New York City, there's a very impressive sculpture of a man holding a hammer high in one hand and using it to beat a huge sword into the shape of a plowshare. It was created by the late Ukrainian artist Evgeny Vukatic, and Mr. Vukatic was inspired to create it from a passage in the Bible. It's a passage in Isaiah chapter 2, which is talking about a future time when there will be peace on earth. Verse 4 of this chapter says, At this future time they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The United Nations was formed right after World War II, the most devastating and destructive war the world had ever suffered. And one of its main goals was to put an end to all wars, to bring peace. And Mr. Vukatic made this sculpture to symbolize that goal. The sculpture is intended to show not just man's desire to put an end to war, but to also convert weapons of destruction into creative tools that benefit mankind. And that's really what makes that passage there in Isaiah so striking and so transcendent. Getting rid of the weapons is only the first half of it. But it's about a future when people will not just throw away all the killing devices somewhere or just bury them somewhere. Instead, they will convert them, upcycle them, transform killing devices into tools of life, tools that boost people's abundance. Converting a sword into a plowshare means taking a weapon that was designed and used to cut people open and turning it into a tool that's used to cut the earth open so that it can be planted and then harvested and yield food that will feed people and contribute to their well-being and prosperity. The United Nations has not succeeded in ending wars. It has not succeeded in turning swords into plowshares. A look at the headlines in all the decades since the UN was formed makes that painfully clear. I heard a joke recently about two extraterrestrials looking down on planet Earth, and the first one says, wow, the dominant life forms of this planet have developed satellite-based nuclear weapons. And the second one says, oh, so are they an emerging intelligence? And the first one says, well, I don't think so. They have the weapons aimed at themselves. The world as a whole has not been able to achieve peace. But even though it hasn't, and even though we have not had a worldwide project to convert all the weapons into tools that benefit mankind, there have been a few somewhat isolated success stories of that happening in various places. Stories like the one about those Vietnamese fishermen taking those F-4 swords of the sky, as you could call them, that were designed to drop bombs and to kill people, and converting their components into fishing boats. Boats used to fish and to feed people. You could say those canoes are now the plowshares of those Vietnamese river systems. For the next example of beating swords into plowshares, we're going to take a look at Western Ukraine. There's a small village there called Ternopilia. It's in the Lvov region, 
And the farmers in this village have never really had a lot of spare cash laying around to invest in advanced farming machinery. So in the early 1990s, shortly after Ukraine became an independent country once again, several of the farmers of this village pitched in together and they bought one of the Soviet Union's tanks. The Soviet Union had just collapsed a year or so earlier, so the government suddenly had no need for a lot of its military equipment, including this tank. So they sold it for just a fraction of what it was worth. Shortly after they bought it, these farmers set to work removing the barrel of the tank and then torching and grinding off some of the other weapons components that were attached to it. And then they welded a massive bulldozer blade to the front of it, and they attached a plow to the back. And then what they basically had, and still have to this day from what I can tell, is a very large, very capable tractor to work their fields with. And it's a tractor that cost these farmers less than a third of what an ordinary, much smaller tractor would have cost them. I'll just read a a quote here from a report about this tank-turned-tractor. This this was published back in 2002 by Ukraine's Novi Kana news outlet. It says, In spring, the tank tills the soil. In autumn, it plows. And in winter, it clears away the snow. So these men turned this sword, this tank, into a very useful and very versatile plowshare. And after seeing how successful that first tank tractor was, other people in the area started to follow suit. Reports by the BBC say that a total of about 50 tanks, tanks originally designed to kill people, were converted into farming tractors used to feed people and to provide them with livelihood. For the next example, we'll take a look at Taiwan. There's a family-run company in Taiwan called Kinmen, and their business model is, I think, a pretty unusual one. This company takes old artillery shells that mainland China had fired at Taiwan back in the second Taiwan Strait Crisis. That was a military conflict that happened from 1958 to 1978. And during this conflict, mainland China fired more than half a million shells at Taiwan. And a large number of them were what is called propaganda shells. That means the high explosive is taken out and a propaganda leaflet is stuffed inside there instead. So that means that when the shells landed on Taiwan they were still mostly intact. Instead of exploding into thousands of tiny fragments of steel the way a normal one would. So anyway, the the Kinman Company are basically blacksmiths who gather up these large steel shells and then, by hand, they cut the shells into smaller pieces, stick them into their forges until they're red hot, and then pound and hammer them into useful tools. The company used to focus on plows and other farming equipment, but it has more recently been mostly making high-end cutlery. From a single artillery shell, they can make about 60 pieces of cutlery. 
And these high-quality tools have found their way into many top hotels and restaurants in Taiwan and around the world. And they're being used every day to basically to prepare delicious food. Then there are other less direct examples of weaponry and equipment related to weaponry, not making farming equipment, but making other tools that are of benefit to people. One of these can be seen on the streets of the East End of London. Many of the streets there are lined with bollards, which are basically stout metal posts used to guide traffic and to protect sidewalks from from uh, intrusions by cars. And if you look carefully at these bollards, you'll see that many of them are actually cannons. They're cannons from old French warships. After the British defeated the French at the Battle of Trafalgar, they started stripping the French boats, trying to reuse anything they could from them on their British boats. But when they got to the cannons, the British saw that the French ones were too big to be retrofitted onto the British ships. Well, the British were still determined to find a way to use the cannons in a productive way, so they took them and used them as bollards to line their streets. Today, many of the cannon-shaped bollards that you see there are just replicas that have replaced the original cannons over the years, but there are still a few that are authentic and that actually used to fire from French ships to try to destroy British ships. But now, of course, they're used to protect pedestrians on the sidewalks. So if you poke around into uh, places that have suffered conflicts, you find all kinds of examples of useful, life-enriching tools being made from various kinds of metaphorical swords. We've seen examples from F4s, from Soviet tanks, from artillery shells, from cannons, and so on. But what about nuclear swords? What about nuclear weapons? What about these most deadly killing devices that mankind has ever made? These are the swords that threaten humanity's very survival. Can they be beaten into plowshares? Well, believe it or not, recent history has actually shown some nuclear weapons being converted and essentially beaten into plowshares. Back in 1993, just a couple of years after the Soviet Union collapsed and after the Cold War ended, the United States started a program with Russia, and the program was called Megatons to Megawatts. Basically, the Russians would disassemble their old nuclear warheads and take the highly enriched weapons-grade uranium out of them. That's the stuff that makes a nuclear bomb nuclear. It's what gives these weapons such astounding destructive capacity. And once the Russians had removed the highly enriched uranium, they would put it through a process called downblending. Downblending is basically the opposite of enriching. This downblending process converts the weapons-grade uranium into low-enriched uranium. It makes it go from containing 90% or more uranium-235 to containing less than 5% uranium-235. Well, from 1993 to 2013, the Russians did this with about 500 metric tons of Russian weapons-grade uranium, which is the equivalent of about 20,000 individual nuclear warheads. And once the uranium was downblended, 
the Russians sold it to the United States, and the U.S. used it for fuel in our nuclear power plants. This was no small program. During those 20 years, from 93 to 2013, about 10% of the total amount of electricity produced in America was generated by fuel that came from those old Soviet nuclear weapons. And of course, a massive amount of that electricity in America would have been used to power greenhouses and farming equipment of all kinds. So this, this megatons to megawatts program really did transform nuclear swords into electric plowshares. And many people even called this program the Swords to Plowshares program. It was a pretty astounding success story, but of course it did not usher in an age of peace. Most of these were archaic nuclear weapons. The Russians were dismantling them in, in large part just so they would have more money to build more advanced weaponry. But nevertheless, the program showed that even the most destructive and devastating swords that mankind has ever made can be beaten into plowshares. They can be turned into something that benefits mankind and enriches people's lives. Over the last 5,000 years, men have fought more than 14,000 wars. And those wars have resulted in the death of about 3.5 billion people. 3.5 billion lives violently, prematurely ended. Those figures come from data assembled and analyzed by the Henry Dunant Institute. That's a, it's a staggering number of wars, 14,000. And the steepest cost of all that violence, of course, is all those lives that were lost. But even just in economic terms, the cost of war and of maintaining militaries is staggering. In the United States, we spend about $560 billion every year on military. That's $560 billion that could, in a world free of war, go instead to better education, better infrastructure, or it could just be left in the taxpayers' pockets. That $560 billion means that the government devotes about $1,860 for every man, woman, and child to military spending. It comes to about 3.3% of America's total gross domestic product, or GDP. Some other countries spend a much greater percentage of their GDP on defense. In Israel, it's 5.2%. Saudi Arabia spends 10.4%. And in North Korea, which is home to so much poverty and starvation and malnutrition and, and suffering, they spend an astonishing 24% of GDP on armed forces, just shy of uh, one quarter of their total. Sadly, military is not really an unwise thing to spend money on. In this war-torn world, if a nation wants to ensure its sovereignty, maintaining armed forces is necessary. But imagine a country that spends zero dollars each year on defense. A country where 0% of the GDP pays for soldiers' salaries and research and development of new weaponry. $0 pays for the upkeep of bases 
and maintaining armaments. Well, there actually is a certain country that started to do that a few years ago. Back in 1948, the president of Costa Rica, there in Central America, took a big sledgehammer, he lifted it over his shoulder, and he smashed a hole in a stone wall at his country's military headquarters. The president was not just being dramatic, he was announcing something really unusual. He announced that Costa Rica was taking an unheard of step. It was officially renouncing military. He said the huge military headquarters, whose wall he had just smashed that hole in, would be turned into a national art museum. And he said that from then on, all the money that Costa Rica had been spending on military would be redirected toward education, environmental protection, health care, and things like that. Shortly after that, the president signed a deal with the U.S., basically saying that if Costa Rica were attacked by another country, then America would come to their defense. The Costa Rican president probably did have some selfish motivations to demilitarize his country. He was afraid that he might soon be overthrown by a military coup. So he sort of preemptively prevented that from happening by getting rid of the military. But even though it happened with selfish motivations and with some short-sighted reasoning, Costa Rica stuck to its guns. Or I guess I should say it stuck to its absence of guns in this demilitarization project. So here we are almost 70 years later, and to this day, Costa Rica has no army, no air force, and no navy at all. They have no heavy armaments. Costa Rica does have local police forces, but there's no national defense force. When VIPs from other countries travel to Costa Rica, they're not met by uniformed military bands or any other uniformed authorities. That's what happens in pretty much every other country on the planet, but no such bands, troops, or uniforms even exist in Costa Rica. So instead, when VIPs from other nations visit there, they are greeted by young Costa Rican students dressed up in the national colors of the visitor's country. David Barash has written quite a bit about Costa Rica's uh, abolishing of its military, and I'd like to read one pretty poetic sentence from an article that he wrote about it for the Los Angeles Times back in 2013. He wrote, If you walk along a beach in Costa Rica and see lines of pelicans flying in perfect formation, consider it the Costa Rican Air Force out on maneuvers. The result of this, since Costa Rica hasn't spent money on military for almost 70 years, is that it has allowed the country to channel all kinds of money into things like education and environmental protection and developing renewable energy. Costa Rica's literacy rate is 97.8%. That's 14 percentage points higher than the global average. And Costa Rica's educational system, according to the World Economic Forum, ranks as the very highest in all of Latin America. Costa Rica's commitment to environment and its wildlife is really astounding. I, I had the chance to visit the country a couple of years ago, and it really feels like the entire country is a giant wildlife refuge. 
In reality, only 25% of its total land is protected as natural habitat, but that is a larger percentage than any other country on Earth. It's an incredibly beautiful place. And the area where Costa Rica has really emerged as a shining star is renewable energy. Renewable energy there accounts for a staggering 90% of the total energy output for the entire nation. That's a phenomenal number. 90% of all the power they use comes from hydroelectric, geothermal, wind, and solar power. Just for comparison, here in the U.S., renewable energies generate only about 14% of electricity. And a big part of the reason why Costa Rica has been able to be so, so innovative and so successful in these areas is because they've been able to take all that money that otherwise would have had to go to military and they've been able to invest it into these other arenas. On a national level, they have beat their swords into plowshares and they've reaped some astounding benefits as a result of it. I don't mean to paint Costa Rica as a perfect place. The country still grapples with crime and corruption and many other problems. And also since America is pulling back so much from its role in providing security to its friends and allies, it's likely that Costa Rica's decision to dissolve its military and to instead rely on America for protection will end up having some terrible consequences for the people. But nevertheless, in the short term, Costa Rica's demilitarization project gives us a partial glimpse, kind of like through a glass darkly, of what the world might look like when nations are able to stop spending anything on military. It gives us a, a partial look at what will be possible in that future world written about in Isaiah 2, that world in which all people and all nations beat the swords into plowshares. Even just in economic terms, the benefits of that sea change will be immense. Before we conclude today, I wanted to tell you about a booklet that we would like to send you a free copy of. It's by Herbert W. Armstrong, and it's called The Wonderful World Tomorrow, What It Will Be Like. And this booklet does an amazing job describing what this world will look like after all the people in all nations beat their swords into plowshares. That will happen in the very near future, and this booklet explains in just the most inspiring detail how it will happen and about all of the abundance and peace that will saturate that future time. So please just go to thetrumpet.com and click on the literature tab, and you'll see this booklet down there in the list. You can read it online there, or we would be happy also to send you a free hard copy of it. Well, that's our show for today. Many thanks for tuning in. Please send any comments you may have to tsar at kpcg.fm. And I'll leave you today with a clip from the late U.S. President Ronald Reagan. This is part of his 1987 address to the United Nations General Assembly. Despite our differences, there is one common hope that brought us all to make this common pilgrimage. The hope that mankind will one day beat its swords into plowshares. The hope of peace. Cannot swords be turned to plowshares? Can we and all nations not live in peace? 
In our obsession with antagonisms of the moment, we often forget how much unites all the members of humanity. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize this common bound. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? What could be more alien to the universal aspirations of our peoples than war and the threat of war? Mm -hmm.